What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Speech Analysis on the Public Speaker Podcast. I hope everyone is having an awesome day on this beautiful July 10th, I think it is, in the summer. Um, my summer is going pretty well, so I hope everyone's summer is going well. On today's talk, we have a pretty uh, interesting speech analysis. Um, I This is a 10-minute TED Talk. I did not expect to analyze it for 20 more minutes, uh, ultimately making this like a 30-minute podcast, but... Um, I did uh, because I found a lot of interesting stuff in it and uh, I think it's pretty valuable. So uh, this talk is called Why We Ignore Obvious Problems and How to Solve Them by Michelle Wucker. Um, I think there's a whole lot of valuable information here uh, in regards to public speaking. Uh, the, the main key takeaways from this are the ability to do a comparative analysis using a philosophical argument um, and I get a lot more deeper in talking about what this means in the context of public speaking writ large um, a little bit later in the analysis the ending and the call to action um, I have a little disagreement with for how the public speaker tends to do it in this speech and I have a better alternative for how I think they should do it so I talk about that um, and the final thing I talk about is the uh, ability for public speakers to and this I talked about in my Simon Sinek speech analysis first why then trust how to brand their own idea and actually after I, I did this talk and I recorded this video I went um, to Michelle Walker's website and apparently the gray rhino which you will hear a lot about um, is like the name of her book or something. So it's definitely true that uh, if you're able to brand your own idea and market it essentially by talking about it in your public speeches, um, then there is a huge potential for it to be attached to you and your reputation and take your brand to the next level. So I really enjoyed this speech just from a content perspective. Um, I had a lot of different valuable insights that I think um, make this analysis worthy of uh, being a speech that's analyzed. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this talk, leave a speech you would like me to review, and I will see you guys on the next episode of the Public Speaker Podcast on speech analysis. So I'll see you guys next time. Enjoy the analysis. Bye. So what if there were a highly obvious problem right in front of you? One that everyone was talking about? One that affected you directly? Would you do everything within your power to fix things before they got worse? Um, so I think this introduction was good. Um, for me, I'm really keen on how a speaker tries to hook an audience's attention. So what uh, Michelle did here was a visualization slash asking a question combination. Basically, this is when a public speaker or presenter tries to get the audience to visualize something, uh, like some scenario. So in this case, it was like, imagine you have a problem that you really want to solve. And then there's a question posed based upon the context of the visualization, which is, uh, in this case, if you had the chance to solve it, would, what would you do in your power? Would you do anything you have to solve it? Um, the, the key relevancy here towards asking that question and doing a visualization is that you can do them both separately, but when you combine them, it just becomes that much more powerful. Meaning if I make you imagine and visualize a scenario and then I follow up with a sort of a, a reason for you to care about the scenario that I painted via a question that not only allows more interactivity with the audience, but it also forces the audience to recognize why they were forced to imagine or visualize a scenario in the first place. Um, you can ask a question by itself, you can tell an audience to imagine a scenario, uh, imagine a scenario by itself, but the combination of them both, if correctly given to the right audience, the right demographic of people that will actually care about the question and the visualization that you're pointing towards them, um, it can be a really strong and healthy mix in terms of being able to get their attention. Don't be so sure. We are all much more likely than any of us would like to admit to miss what's right in front of our eyes. And in fact, 
we're sometimes most likely to turn away from things precisely because of the threat that they represent to us in business, life, and the world. So I want to give you an example from my world, economic policy. So when Alan Greenspan was head of the Federal Reserve, his in- So what she's doing here now is beginning to transition to a historical event, something that uh, has happened maybe in, in her life or in the macro level world in general. Um, and then she's going to use that event to then springboard off into a larger point. So we just saw the transition from the hook in terms of being able to get an audience's attention. Hopefully she's got at least some of them decently caring about the ability to solve a problem. Now she's getting into a little bit of a personal experience slash historical event, and that's going to move on towards whatever else she's going to talk about in the talk. Higher job was to watch out for problems in the U.S. economy and to make sure that they didn't spin out of control. So after 2006, when real estate prices peaked, more and more and more respected leaders and institutions started to sound the alarm bells about risky lending and dangerous market bubbles. As you know, in 2008, it all came tumbling down. Banks collapsed. Global stock markets lost nearly half their value. Millions and millions of people lost their homes to foreclosure. And at the bottom, nearly one in 10 Americans was out of work. So after things calmed down a little bit, Greenspan and many others came out with a postmortem and said, nobody could have predicted that crisis. They called it a black swan, something that was unimaginable, unforeseeable, and completely improbable. A total surprise, except it wasn't always such a surprise. For example, my Manhattan apartment nearly doubled in value in less than four years. I saw the writing on the wall, and I sold it. <laughs> okay, um, so let's talk about this. This is where the speaker's using a little bit of humor, um, obviously in terms of selling her Manhattan apartment, doubling in value, the audience is like, wow, you must have got a lot of money, that's why they're clapping for it. Um, but the larger thing she's doing here, which is important to understand, is that uh, she's doing a, a, a tactic a lot of presenters uh, try to use to, to enhance their talk, which is the individual versus the collective dynamic. Um, and the specificity of, of it in terms of that dynamic in the context of this talk is that the collective, which is what the speaker, when I mean individual, not generally, but I mean the individual speaker in terms of their speech, is going against the collective thought that Alan Greenspan said in terms of representing the economy, that this was not possible to predict that something could have happened. So what she's trying to do really is set up that the way the government responded, the, the United States government in 2008 after the economic recession, was that we didn't know it was going to happen. We, we couldn't have possibly predicted it. It is very unique for someone to go against what the majority of people say. It's kind of like the most important stories of humanity when one goes against the majority, especially when the majority is wrong or the one has an idea that's different, et cetera, et cetera. So in the context of this public speech, what the speaker is doing, which is a really good tactic, is positioning herself as the individual that is going against the collective thought. Now, there may be tons of people in the world that believe that what Greenspan is saying is ridiculous. Obviously, you could have predicted it, blah, 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 blah. But in this talk, the speaker is positioning herself in the position of the individual that is skeptical and, and doubtful of what the majority of people at the time were saying in terms of like the most 
uh, credible people in the economic world. So the, the point of this here is to get the audience on your side. And that's why the individual versus collective dynamic is good. It's especially good if the individual is usually right. right? Like if the collective is saying something that's obviously true and you're going against it, it's going to be hard to get regular people on your side, regular people in the audience. But when you have an idea that goes against collective thought, then it becomes a lot easier to appeal that to an audience. It's sort of like the rags to riches story. It is, it is like the underdog. It is the person who is going against societal beliefs, breaking the rules. A lot of people love that story. A lot of people hate to be the person doing that, but a lot of people love to resonate with that story. So it's a very unique thing that she, what she's doing right here, and you can use this in your speeches by making or setting up, even if it's not that dramatic, but setting up some proposition in which you and your belief, your talk, your presentation is against what a majority of people think. It's why a lot of public speakers who speak get speaking gigs, right? Because they have something unique and innovative to say that isn't necessarily mainstream status quo uh, conversation in whatever niche that they're talking about. So let's see where the talk goes from here. <laughs> So a lot of other people also saw the warning, spoke out publicly, and they were ignored. So we didn't know exactly what the crisis was going to look like, not the exact parameters, but we could all tell that the thing coming at us was as dangerous, visible, and predictable as a giant gray rhino charging right at us. The black swan lends itself to the idea that we don't have power over our futures. And unfortunately, the less control that we think we have, the more likely we are to downplay it or ignore it entirely. So here is where she's getting into the larger philosophical message, um, which is about how the, the mindset of, of assuming something is going to happen stops you from being able to, to stop it from happening. Um, so this is the small transition where we're going to get into more of the theme of her talk by using the historical event about the economy that she brought up and now transitioning to a larger message, which is getting the audience to change the way they're perceiving the talk because now they're expecting a little bit more meat in terms of unpackaging this idea uh, about mindsets being able to control your actions. And this dangerous dynamic masks another problem, that most of the problems that we're facing are so probable and obvious, they're things that we can see but we still don't do anything about. So I created the gray rhino metaphor to meet what I felt was an urgent need, to help us to take a fresh look with the same passion that people had for the black swan, but this time for the things that were highly obvious, highly probable, but still neglected. Those are the gray rhinos. Once you start looking for gray rhinos, you see them in the headlines every day. And so what I see in the headlines is another big gray rhino, and a new highly probable financial crisis. And I wonder if we've learned anything in the last 10 years. Quick thing on this uh, gray rhinos thingy. Um, this is, I talked about this before in, uh, my, my analysis of Simon Sinek's, uh, first trust, then why talk, uh, check that out. It, it is, it is a tactic that public speakers use to brand their own original ideas. So I, I'm not sure exactly where this gray rhino thing came from, but it's something that she decided to come up with and then she assigned a value to this term or this phrase. And now she's marketing it literally in her public speech by using it, uh, to represent something that gives it more context and value. And the hope here, just from like a... 
I guess like a, bit, a business perspective, but also just from like a, a general person who's trying to gain more awareness perspective is that people who see this talk or get into what who Michelle Walker is um, will start coining the term green griner or using that term in, in the context that she wants people to use it in and she'll get the credit for creating that term. Um, so this is just sort of like a, a, a psychological thing a lot of public speakers do. You don't have to call it a gray rhino, right? Like you don't have to call it um, uh, a specific point that Simon Sinek re referenced in his talk, like he called it a spatial point or something. I'm definitely forgetting the name. But the point is that if you brand it on your own dime, on your own sort of philosophy, then it has a better chance of taking off, which increases your reputation and then allows you to just speak about it a lot more. And it's just fun to like create new shit and like be innovative with how you uh, express ideas, I guess. So if you listen to Washington or Wall Street, you could almost be forgiven for thinking that only smooth sailing laid ahead. Quick stop one more time, then I'm gonna let the speech continue again. This is the individual versus the collective, right? So she's setting up that Washington and Wall Street, they're the pro, if, like, if you believe in the mainstream stuff, then you're gonna assume that everything's okay. Um, it's actually what like a lot of politicians do when they try to position themselves as the person who's not part of like, Washington and, and the inside politics, but she is trying to say that what she says or what, what the public speaker is putting out there in terms of their message is going against what the mainstream collective believes. And that is a very powerful position for the reasons I mentioned above for a public speaker because then they can create the sort of uh, uh, narrative that they're the ones breaking the rules. And it's 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 especially effective when it's actually true, right? So in this case, it's true. Like she didn't believe this financial thing couldn't have been predicted. Her old talk is about being able to predict stuff. Um, so she's setting up this narrative about how you shouldn't believe mainstream thought. And her as the speaker delivering that message puts her in the prime position to be the individual versus the collective. All right, back to the talk. But in China, where I spend a lot of time, the conversation is totally different. The entire economic team all the way up to President Xi Jinping himself, talk very specifically and clearly about financial risks as gray rhinos and how they can tame them. Now, to be sure, China and the U.S. have very, very different systems of government, which affects what they're able to do or not. And many of the root causes for their economic problems are totally different. But it's no secret that both countries have problems with debt, with inequality, and with economic productivity. So how come the conversations are so different? You could actually ask this question, not just about countries, but about just about everyone. The, the auto companies that put safety first and the ones that don't bother to recall their shoddy cars until after people die. The grandparents who, in preparing for the inevitable, inevitable the ones who have the eulogy written, the menu for the funeral lunch, <laughs> my grandparents did, <laughs> and everything but the final date chiseled into the gravestone. But then you have the grandparents on the other side who don't put their final affairs in order, who don't get rid of all the junk they've been hoarding for decades and decades and leave their kids to deal with it. So what makes the difference between one side and the other. Why do some people see things and deal with them and the other ones just look away? So the first one has to do with culture, society, the people around you. If you think 
that someone around you is going to help pick you up when you fall, you're much more likely to see a danger as being smaller. And that allows us to take good chances, not just the bad ones. For example, like risking criticism when you talk about the danger that nobody wants you to talk about. Or taking the opportunities that are kind of scary, so in their own way, are gray rhinos. So the U.S. has a very individualist culture. Go it alone. Um, gonna, gonna stop here, talk a little bit more, talk, give more of my thoughts. And I didn't think I would be analyzing this speech to the extent that I am, but there's actually a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, so a couple things. One, she's using the term gray rhinos a lot, right? So again, that speaks to... I don't know if she created it or if she's using it from someone else, but the point is she wants that to be a thing. So she's going to say it a lot and try to use it in as many places as she can. That's the first thing. The second thing is it's actually really interesting. I did a whole series on YouTube. I, again, I made a free public speaking course, 96 videos. Don't buy a public speaking course. Just watch my YouTube videos. Quick plug. Uh, anyway, I get, I, the second series I did, which is a four-part series on this channel, uh, I think I put it up in uh, late January, was... Uh, basic philosophy for public speakers. So I went over like three to four different um, categories of philosophy, individualism versus collectivism, util versus deon, and progressivism versus conservatism. And it's really interesting now that I'm actually seeing a public speaker after doing all these speech analyses um, use the individual versus collectivism narrative in their actual speech. And it, I swear I did not know like she was going to talk about this stuff. So when I mentioned the individual versus collective dynamic above, I was purely talking about it from a public speaking perspective, like technical, not from a content perspective. Now she's getting into the comparison between the United States and China, which is a content-oriented uh, description of the individual versus the collective, and she's doing a comparison of cultures. The reason I bring this up is because I guess I was right when I made when I made that series, which was that like I th I think it's very important for public speakers, and and this is um, my ability to th this is me trying to convince you to learn a little bit of philosophy if you're trying to get better at public speaking. I, I think it is important for public speakers to know basic philosophical principles, um, and, and not just public speakers but presenters in general, because when you're giving a talk on a on a topic in, in the context of this, it's why we ignore obvious problems and how to act on them. You, you might think that has nothing to do with knowing basic philosophical sort of debates and like the, the main premises and arguments of both sides. But this talk has evolved into a philosophical discussion more than it is uh, just a discussion about solving problems. It, it took a lot of current events, historical events, put them into context, and now it's gaining towards a historical sort of sociological cultural comparison of two vastly different cultures and if this public speaker did not know those basic philosophical principles from the beginning it would be hard not only for them to construct this part of the speech where at the six four six minute 44 part of their speech where they start transitioning into the comparison of these cultures but when they were even thinking of what this speech would be about that idea of comparing america versus china would have never popped in because the spark of the individual versus the collective wouldn't have been there because they wouldn't have known that basic philosophical debate. Um, and that's why I think like that, that you, should, you should definitely check out the series. It, I think it's really important for people who are trying to present or try to put themselves on stage to know common philosophical arguments that are very basic in nature but can be applied to a variety of situations. Because as I mentioned above, the individual versus the collective can literally apply to thousands of different things throughout the course of humanity. Um, so it's just very interesting to see how that's playing out in, in this speech, because I've never seen a speech out of all the analyses I've done so far that is explicitly um, referencing sort of the individual versus collective or any philosophical thing. So anyway, yeah, let's get into what the comparison is going to be like now.
And paradoxically, this makes many Americans much less open to change and taking good risks. In China, by contrast, people believe that the government is going to keep problems from happening, which might not always be what happens, but people believe it. They believe they can rely on their families. So that makes them more likely to take certain risks, like buying Beijing real estate or like being more open about the fact that they need to change direction. And in fact, the pace of change in China is absolutely amazing. Second of all, how much do you know about a situation? How much are you willing to learn? And are you willing to see things even when it's not what you want? So many of us are so unlikely to pay attention to the things that we just want to black out. We don't like them. We pay attention to what we want to see, what we like, what we agree with. But we have the opportunity and the ability to correct those blind spots. Now, I spent a lot of time talking with people of all walks of life about the gray rhinos in their life and their attitudes. And you might think that the people who are more afraid of risks or more sensitive to them would be the ones who would be less open to change. But the opposite is actually true. I've found that the people who are willing to recognize the problems around them and make plans are the ones who are able to tolerate more risk, good risk, and deal with the bad risk. And it's because as we seek information, we increase our power to do something about the things that we're afraid of. And that brings me to my third point. How much control do you feel that you have over the gray rhinos in your life? One of the reasons we don't act... Yeah, these, these gray rhinos are uh, very uh, important to Michelle Walker. <laughs> ...is that we often feel too helpless. Think of climate change. It can feel so big that not a single one of us could make a difference. So some people go about life denying it. Other people blame everyone except themselves. Like my friend who says he's not ever going to give up his SUV until they stop building coal plants in China. But, but we really we have an opportunity to change. No two of us are the same. Every single one of us has the opportunity to change our attitudes, our own and those of people around us. So today, I want to invite all of you to join me and helping to spark an open and honest conversation with the people around you about the gray rhinos in our world and be brutally honest about how well we're dealing with them. I hear so many times in the States, well, of course we should deal with obvious problems, but if you don't see what's in front of you, you're either dumb or ignorant. That's what they say, and I could not disagree more. If you don't see what's in front of you, you're not dumb, you're not ignorant, you're human. And once we all recognize that shared vulnerability, that gives us the power to open our eyes, to see what's in front of us, and to act before we get trampled. So that was Why We Ignore Obvious Problems and How to Act on Them by Michelle Walker. Um, so the end of that was kind of a call to action. It was basically saying, like, I'm opening up the door based upon all the analysis I've done in this speech for everyone here, right, in this in this room to have a discussion with each other about how we can understand the obvious problems that are facing 
uh, our communities, our organizations, our humanity, right? Like existential problems like climate change and how we can actually act on them. Um, I think the ending of the speech, if I had, I, so I think the speech was good. Um, I thought all the analysis was good. I thought it was a really good mix of comparative analysis between different cultures and current events and then the combination of how they ebb and flow with each other, the transitions from A to B, because that is a hard thing to do to transition from talking about the economic recession all the way down to China, right? Like there's a lot of stuff in between that has to happen effectively in its communication in order for that uh, uh, gap to be bridged, that bridge to be gap, that gap to be bridged. Um, the ending of the speech, I think, could have been a little bit better in terms of just like having a stronger call to action, right? So I think the call to action could have used a little bit more pausing um, in terms of uh, just like trying to implicate the audience in being guilty. Uh, and she references like her friend who won't stop using SUVs until China stops using coal plants. And I think that's a good example, but that should be like implicated to everyone in the audience who probably like I assume like at least 50% of them have the same mentality, right? Like why should I give up my life, my luxuries, my like the things I want to do, even if it hurts the planet, if that guy who's also hurting the planet isn't doing that, right? I think that idea should have been hit towards the audience near the end of the speech. And the call to action should have been to really get the audience to be introspective with themselves. Like if you're going to drive a car that has like 10 miles per gallon just because it, it feels good to you and and you won't stop just because XYZ person won't stop. Like you have to have a really deep introspective conversation with yourself and ask yourself what role do you play in terms of your accountability for the entire human race um, in, in terms of the climate change problem in which you feel so special that your uh, ability to just forget about the problems that exist and, and, and put yourself on a pedestal necessitates that you stop caring about obvious problems that you are in, indirectly or not even indirectly directly and disproportionately because like 10 miles per gallon you're probably using a lot more gas contributing to um so i think the ending implication of it could have been a little bit stronger in terms of the call to action and i i kind of understood the call to action is like you guys talk about why there's problems everyone in the audience and like come up with solutions and i, and I think like it's kind of just idealistic to assume that people in the audience will actually talk about it or people viewing this talk will go have a conversation with someone and be like Here's an obvious problem. How do we solve it? I think maybe, and that, not saying that's not possible, but maybe the call to action should have been a, a deeper introspective call to action, um, which would force the individual listening, hearing it, hearing it on a podcast, whatever, to then just think about their own individual contributions to societal problems, to commu communal problems, and then ask themselves what they can do to resolve it. I think that's where the sort of terminal impact of this speech really could have gone and that's if I was coaching this person or if I was just trying to construct a speech based upon this message that's where I would take it right like because I think the speech was really good but the call to action at the end is what you know wraps it all up and 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 delivers it effectively um, so I think that call to action could have been a little bit more stronger but nonetheless I thought it was a really good speech um, I definitely did not expect to do a what is it 28 minutes 29 30 minute analysis on this speech I, I again I had no idea of this speech and this is where like I pick a 10 minute speech and I spend 20 minutes talking and then this video takes so long to edit and all this stuff okay I know I'm boring you guys with my problems but anyway yeah that was my analysis I hope you guys enjoyed it please leave a speech that you would like me to review in the comments um, subscribe please like this is 30 minutes of, of, of value but anyway I will see you guys on the next episode of speech analysis and yeah thank you guys for watching bye